Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It's Thursday afternoon, so it should have been enough time for everybody to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. Retro Sean said, now that Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 are basically retro, are there any scalers coming sometime that could scale their 720p output up to something like 20, 2160p or 4K? So to address that, um, there, the answer to your question is yes, sort of. So the first thing you got to worry about is 4K. And the number one limitation that everybody who's trying to design a scaler now runs into is cost of chips that can handle 4K. So right now, anybody who's already made a scaler or has one coming out could absolutely change the chip to have 4K output, but then you're talking about a $1,500 or $2,000 scaler. So that would be an insane amount of money invested research and development to sell like, I don't know, 50 total. So um, the re that's the main reason why 4K isn't hit right now is because there just is not an affordable chip out. And with the part shortage, there might not be for another three years. So that's what's going to address 4K. But to address that console generation, consoles that have HDMI but are still about to be retro, yeah, there's a ton of different things that can be done with it. And one of the things you mentioned, you said specifically 720p. So those consoles can output 1080p, but very often they're rendered in 720p or lower, and then the console scales it to 1080p. And when you had 1080p TVs, they did a great job. But now that you have that console scale, and then your TV scale to 4K, that leaves a lot up to the unknown and up to things that you can't control. So setting the output to 720p still has a nice high definition widescreen rendered image, but then sending it through a scaler that could do, depending on the type of game, if it's a, a retro style game, you could do sharp scaling. And at the moment, um, the RetroTINK 5X uh, can do 4x3, and I think there might be a 16 by 9 option. Don't quote me on that one. But, uh, you know, you could put something through to sharp scale it up. And that way, while it's not hitting the target resolution of 4K, your monitor has to go a lot less to go from that sharper 1440p resolution up. So that's that's a good thing. And on the other side of things, those 3D graphics that look beautiful and especially look good on 1080p TVs, if you scale that in a different way where you add smoothing, kind of like what the M cable is supposed to do, if you were to apply that from 720p to 1440p or even more importantly, of course, to the native resolution of your panel, you could end up with something that is a, a very smooth image that doesn't have those jaggies that you would have that does kind of fake a higher resolution render. And then, of course, there's also the much less common scenario, but totally applicable in that some games, if you set the output to 480p, you'll get a higher frame rate because it's rendering it at a lower resolution. And when you're talking about a 1080p TV, that's a big difference. But when you are rendering something in 480p versus 720p and sending that all the way to 4K, leaving it in 480p and applying like a smoothing type filter to go up to a higher resolution, you would, you know, it would be better if it was rendered higher, but with the addition of the higher frame rate, now the overall total result is better. So, you know, it's, I'm not trying to say a scaler would make a native 480p signal look better than a native 720, but the total result 
higher frame rate, still looks beautiful, a native signal. That's definitely good. So you, if you were looking to do stuff like this now up to 1440p, I would just make sure to get good component video cables. The HD retrovisions are uh, perfect for PlayStation 3, and they're inexpensive considering what you have or what you're getting, super shielded cables. And the Xbox 360, I think you could still find Microsoft ones relatively reasonably priced but hopefully hd retrovision will eventually have cables for all of that stuff too um you know who knows but at the moment you should be able to do something with the retro tank with that and then of course when the morph comes out and the ossc pro which is delayed but will be out eventually those will have hdmi inputs so then you wouldn't need the component you could just go directly in and stay true digital so that's actually a really good thing too though that these consoles do offer full digital support because there's still a lot that you could do with that image, especially as resolutions grow and uh, scalers come up with new and cool things to do. The fact that you'll always be able to start with a true digital solution means that there's still going to be tons of stuff to do without a mod. The only thing you would really worry about is what resolution to set it to, etc. So hopefully that adds some clarity to it and uh, definitely stay tuned for, for some cool things with that generation console and what to do or what you can do with it. I just think we're a few years away from 4K, but that doesn't mean we won't have some cool stuff soon. Over on Patreon, Tyler Fox wanted to follow up on their question from a few months ago. They managed to find a Wii Duel, sent it off for installation, but they wanted to ask how well it plays with homebrew launchers on the Wii. Should they still be using things like 480p and the flicker filter removal, or does the Wii Duel bypass all of that entirely? Uh, they plan on using component cables and the RetroTINK 5X. So that's an interesting question. I think you should still use all of the software settings because that would definitely apply to anything that's being done on the software of the game itself. The Wii Duel is an upgrade in picture quality. Depending on your revision Wii and what cables you're using, it might not be that much of an upgrade at all. Or it could be a big update. Same thing with what monitor you're playing it on, how well your monitor scales 480p. It's, there's a whole bunch of factors that really range between, wow, what a huge upgrade to meh, looks the same. And I mean that respectfully. I'm just being honest. It's a, a total solution thing, not just a one mod type of thing. So my opinion would be that you would still do whatever the fixes that you were going to do before, uh, and, and including whatever homebrew you're using, just use it the same way. Uh, but if anybody knows anything different or anybody has any suggestions, please let me know, because I'm certainly not a Wii expert. I know quite a bit, but every time I talk about it, I seem to get at least one fact wrong. <laughs> I'm trying, though. But uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I would just business as usual with that one. Jake Hughes has been getting into color calibration lately and was looking to use their laptop to run software on their Sony PVM monitor in order to calibrate the color there. So there's two answers to this. I could answer your question directly, which I will in a second, but I'm not sure that's how you're going to want to go about doing this. Dan Mons just recently created a calibration DVD that specifically works great through a PlayStation 2. And PlayStation 2 is very important because it could handle 480i and 480p, which means if you just burn this disc, run it on your PlayStation 2, you can check the color in both resolutions, 15. And I'm pretty sure the color would be the same as 240p and 480i because the CRT just sees it as 15 kilohertz. So you should be able to use your color calibration that way and not mess with anything else. Now, if you did want to take your laptop and plug it into the 20L5, you could take your HDMI out, send that through an HDMI to um, 
to component video converter, and then you would have to set the laptop to either 1280 by 720 or 640 by 480, which you have to go into the custom settings to do that. I think every computer can still do 640 by 480, but you got to go to list all modes and, and select it and make sure to select the correct color space. Otherwise that won't work. So you could do that for 480p. If you, at that point afterwards, you would have to use a downscaler or not use your laptop, get a PC that could have a card that outputs 15 kilohertz directly. So that's certainly something to consider, but do you really need to use your PC? Because that's why I just want to swing back to the whole, maybe just using that color calibration DVD on a PlayStation 2 would be the best move for you. Or I guess even a Wii, because I think there's software that allows you to do that that you could install after the fact, but... I never really used my Wii for anything other than gaming, to be honest with you. But I guess you could also use an original Xbox. Um, but I think a PS2 and that would be probably the best way to go. So if you have any more specific questions, let me know. But I think that's going to be probably your easiest answer. Wyrock wants to know where I think the best place to post their experience on downscaling would be. And my quick answer to that is YouTube, but I do have a little more of an answer to that. Um, and I hope this comes across the right way. I mean it positively. I'm certainly not meaning it as like a gatekeeping thing, but I would always just offer caution to anybody who was trying to do any kind of tutorial anywhere. Um, I would encourage everybody to do it who felt like it. And I, I would always want to just make everybody feel like if you feel like doing something, do it. But one very hard lesson that I learned on all all of these tutorials and all of the things that I've done since I started Retro RGB is a very, very common occurrence is that I take whatever it is that I'm working on and I learn everything there possibly is to know about my setup and I post a guide on it and I very quickly realize that as soon as you deviate from my setup, everything changes. And, and that in fact would have been the wrong advice to give based on that. So I try very carefully to word my guides and videos in a way where I'm very specific about things. And it really is just a matter of what you want to decide to do with this. So if you just want to have a conversation that you could share with your friends who have similar setups, a podcast style video where you just prop your phone up, start talking, have one of your friends over to talk about it with, whatever, that could be the easiest way to do it. And it could certainly be a way to share your experience with others without putting pressure on yourself to do a tutorial. But if you're nuts like me and those things don't bother you, then yeah, I would take the time to go through everything and just be very careful in both how you word things and the advice that you give. Because also just because something works doesn't mean it's good. Uh, I think those HDMI cables that plug into console certainly proved that for us time and time again. Um, and once again, I mean that respectfully. I just, I'm trying to, I always try to spare people some of the growing pains that I went through. And most people, when I give them these warnings, they either are like, oh yeah, yeah I get it. Or they're like, wow, what an asshole. I asked where to post something and you discouraged me. Uh, but if you do end up starting to make tutorials, you'll see exactly what I mean. And you probably will appreciate then at least the warning that I'm giving you. So, I mean, all of that with love and respect, uh, post, you know, post here or, uh, or DM me when you're done. I'd certainly like to take a look. Uh, I barely have any free time, but it's absolutely something I would throw on in the background and listen to while I'm working on whatever craziness I got back there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely YouTube podcast style or full tutorial and just, you know, uh, I, I'm encouraging everybody to do stuff like this, but just be careful, I guess. So good question.
Rick Lewis has about eight consoles that they're going to be running through a composite video switch that's then going to be going into a CRT that's going to be played, obviously, via composite video, and the audio will be played through the TV as well. Now, the setup is important to the questions. Uh, two questions. Are there good shielded composite cables from reputable sellers? And would they see any difference in picture quality? Or is it not really that much of a difference and not worth the time? So... When you're talking about things like the NES to the Switch and from the Switch to the TV, yeah, just get some shielded RCA cables. You don't have to go crazy. You don't have to spend a million bucks. Just get something off of Amazon or Modern Price, wherever it's advertised as a shielded cable, and hopefully look for reviews for people that have confirmed they're actually shielded and not just giant filled with foam cables. So yeah, you could do it on that side. On the console side of things, you could try to obsess over getting original console branded cables, but with Saturn and Genesis, I don't know if they ever actually said Sega on them. So I would just try to get good, I would try to get good branded cables from reputable sellers. I think Retrobit sells composite video cables and I don't, I don't think they're bad at all. Um, so I would just kind of go down that route. You could, if you wanted to, try to contact somebody like RetroAccess and have them custom make you fully shielded coax cables. And if you were using a high-end audio setup, that might be worth it. But you specifically mentioned that you're playing through a CRT, so I don't know if I would go through the trouble. Now, just a, a little addition to that for anybody who's listening that might not uh, understand why I said it that way. Composite video already has all of the interference of everything being mushed together going down one cable. So while I wouldn't suggest a fully unshielded cable because you could draw interference from other things, it could cause interference on the audio lines and the audio lines themselves being poorly shielded would also cause a buzz and a hum. So that's the type of scenario where, yeah, take, you know, pay attention, try to get the best audio quality out. But if you're going just into a consumer grade CRT with the speakers that are built in, as long as they're not garbage cables, you should be totally fine. Um, now, all of that was mostly fact or opinions based off of fact, but this last part is 100% opinion only, but it is my opinion that in a setup like this, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Obviously, if you plug one cable in and there's a loud hum and it looks like crap, throw it out or return it and buy a different brand, but it's my opinion that when you're embracing composite video like this, there's a bunch of advantages. FMVs look better. Early 3D graphics, you could argue, look better because they kind of blend together. And, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog isn't going to look nearly as sharp or colorful as through RGB, but you get the real water in the background, and it's probably true to what everybody would have seen as a kid. So I just... It's my opinion in scenarios like this to embrace composite, enjoy it, and if you decide that someday you want to start obsessing over this stuff, that's when you would go down the S-Video, RGB, or component video route and, you know, just kind of leave composite as is. Totally up to you, though. There's no wrong answer on that last part. I just wanted to share my thoughts, but hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction for your setup. Kyle Duncan wants to know if there are any third-party alternatives to the N64 expansion pack that work well, and if not, what's the likelihood someone could come up with a modernized alternative similar to the Forever pack as a replacement for the memory pack? Um, so some third-party expansion packs used the Nintendo chip or the same exact chip that Nintendo used. Um, generally, you would see the Nintendo logo on there, 
And that's kind of how you would know it was officially licensed. And the ones that you didn't see the Nintendo logo or the word Nintendo on there at all were the ones using junky chips like the one I showed in my N64 video. So I would just try to look for anything that's branded Nintendo anywhere on it. And if you can't find that, I don't know about getting a modernized alternative. I think what might be an issue is that there isn't so much of a shortage yet, and there's no advantage or upgrade you could do. And this is just kind of wild speculation, but if there was a way to make N64 games run better by adding more memory, I think that the community would have figured this out years ago. But the fact that it's just a replacement for something that you could still find out there, you know, maybe... A company will come around and figure that out, but at the moment, I don't know of anything. Uh, but, you know, I'm always a fan of uh, whenever companies or people make projects like this and allow them to, to get out there. So, fingers crossed, but I would just find anything that has a Nintendo branding on it and open it up and double check the chip if you really want to be uh, extra, extra finicky about it. But as long as it works and it says Nintendo on it, it should be fine. Oliver Bernard recently got a 29-inch Panasonic CRT, but they're not getting any image out of it, and they want to know if there's any possible way to try to fix it. So the only thing that I would suggest is try all of the inputs. Um, you know, I see there's at least a front composite input on there. There's probably multiple in back. Try all of those. Try just setting it to RF, and if you don't even get fuzz, if you just get whatever that was, then I don't really know how much effort I would put into it. If you were somebody who had already worked on 20 CRTs and, you know, you're like, ah, hey, you know, I got this one more, what should I do? I would say, why not? Try to recap it, see if you could bring it back to life. And if not, try to find another one like it. So that way you could take the parts out of this one that you already worked on and have them for the next one or something like that. But, you know, you mentioned that you've never worked on a CRT. So it's unfortunately my opinion that unless you find somebody local that thinks that they could have some fun with it, uh, I think that's a dead CRT. So it makes me sad to say that. I hate saying that, but it, it just might be a lot of effort and some danger just to end up with still a dead CRT. Adam Adam Ant has some questions about RetroNAS. I'm going to read the questions real quick and then answer it all in one because my answer has combines all of this stuff, but they their biggest concern is their hard drive in building one of these. They know they can go on Amazon and just pick up an 18 terabyte hard drive, but what about solid state? They don't get to be as large, but they're more reliable. Is there a way to use RetroNAS with more than one SSD? They don't have to use a Pi 4. They could repurpose an old PC with multiple USB 3 ports or multiple SATA ports, and they would even settle for a way within RetroNAS to have one 18 terabyte drive automatically back up to another once a month or something on the off chance one fails. So there's a couple of answers. First of all, if you don't really have any need for network attached storage other than RetroNAS and the things that that's using, by far the easiest way is to buy two hard drives. If your budget allows, I would buy the big ones because you never know when they're gonna, it's going to be another hard drive shortage or if you're going to get super into collecting something that's large. But you could pick up an 8 terabyte fairly cheap. But whatever it is, I would pick up two hard drives, build, uh, you know, maybe both USB 3, let's just say, and then build a retro NAS with a Pi and then stick the other one in your computer. And then there's a program called Free File Sync that I use to sync many different things together. And you could just manually run that anytime you do a ROM change. So for me personally, like on my main PC, um, I sync that to my laptop 
And then in my main PC is a backup drive. And when I move stuff out of my working directory onto the backup, then I run a backup from there to my Unraid server. So they're all, no matter what, my files are always in two places, or if it's not, it's only for a short period of time. So you could do that. If you throw on one or two ROMs, whatever, but if you get a whole new ROM set, or if you, you just patched a whole bunch of stuff, then just run the backup and that should be cool. So that's probably the easiest way to go about doing this. Two drives and a Pi, one for, you know, backup only, the other to run all the time in RetroNAS. To address... Uh, the reliability thing. While there's always an IT person out there with a story about how X brand drive is going to die on you, I've had great luck with modern hard drives. I've also had really great luck with companies warrantying them and stuff like that. So I really wouldn't worry so much about that. And I definitely wouldn't worry about speed at all in the context of RetroNAS. Obviously, if you're building a RAID array because you're you're going to be rendering video to it, that's a wildly different thing. But you're specifically talking about RetroNAS. So in that context, the speed difference of an SSD and one 18 terabyte spinning hard drive isn't really going to be a noticeable difference unless you're copying to the RetroNAS, but that's not gaming. That's not going to affect your gaming experience at all. Now, if you still wanted to go down this road, uh, this road or if you just wanted more than RetroNAS, one thing you absolutely could do is build yourself an Unraid server. So in that case, I would take as many drives as you wanted. You could absolutely use SSDs if you chose. Uh, I would also add a parity drive and then build an Unraid server. Definitely check out Space Invader 1's channel. Ed has all of the videos you need to learn how to do all of that stuff. And then after that's up and running, there should be a, a container being released at some point for RetroNAS. But even right now, you could just start up a VM, load Debian, and load RetroNAS that way and have it just auto start when your server starts. And then you just map it to a share on that Unraid server. If you've never done anything like that before, it's weird because in the um, virtual machine, it's going to look like you're mapping it over the network, but the files are not going out of the, you know, out of the Unraid server to, <laughs> to your router and back into it. it. It stays local because the network adapter is bridged. Uh, and then that's it. So you have everything connected, but separated. You also have all of the advantages of, of an Unraid server, which if that's something you're into, cool. Then the only other thing to add, because if I didn't add this, there's always some know-it-all IT person that wants to rub it in everybody's face that a parity drive is not a backup. No shit, buddy. Uh, everybody likes to just throw that down. I have no idea. Maybe they don't know I did IT forever, or maybe they don't know other people know these things, but a parity drive means that if you have an array of drives in your Unraid server or a hard RAID server, and one of those drives die, dies, and not any of the others, just one drive... You could pull that dead drive out, put another one in, and all your data's back. But if your computer gets struck by lightning and all the drives die, if two drives die at the same time, which happens, um, then you're completely screwed. So you would still really want to back that up. My Unraid server is definitely a backup, although I do access a lot of stuff from it. Everything on there is in more than one place. Um, so that just kind of brings you back to your concern of reliability well, you know, what if you spill a glass of water on your server, if lightning strikes, whatever else, you could spend all of that time and all of that money building a solid state Unraid server, and you're still going to probably need a large spinning hard drive to back that up on. So that brings me back to what I said first, grab two big hard drives. Um, and if you don't need anything other than what RetroNAS offers, grab two hard drives and a Pi, and that's it. And you don't have to worry about anything else. 
hopefully I made that clear. Um, other than getting hate from IT people, <laughs> I am one of them too, by the way. Uh, I don't think I don't think I got anything wrong there, but please let me know if you need any more clarification. Edward Rosenberg has one of those laser bear LCD monitors in a CRT looking case. I did a live stream and a video on that a while back and I thought they were very cool. But the big problem with that model revision of the driver board is that it didn't have aspect ratio controls. So if you ran it through something like a retro tank, you could run it in 16 by nine mode, which would stretch everything out. But when you're running it on a four by three monitor, that would automatically squish it back in. But the problem is Edward's trying to run GameCube GC video HDMI uh, right directly into that, which outputs 720 by 480. So it's not the correct aspect ratio. Um, it They have both the Carby and the GCHD Mark II. So I would think that the easiest way to get around this is by taking the analog video out of the GCHD Mark II and running that through an OSSC or a RetroTINK 5X where you could manipulate aspect ratio. Or I guess really any device that could manipulate aspect ratio, but those are the two best in the community. So here's the problem though, is cost. What if GameCube is the only retro console you're looking to plug into this? Maybe you have a Mr. and you have GameCube. I then would not recommend spending 300 bucks on the RetroTINK 5X. Don't take that out of context. I love the RetroTINK 5X. I love Mike. But for one console, even Mike would agree, that's probably not the best answer. You could probably find cheap OSSCs for less than 100 bucks, But then again, is that going to be worth it to you? Maybe you could sell your Carby and, and pick up one of those. But it's really just a cost thing. If you're asking how to solve the problem, stick it through a no-lag device that you could force a 16 by 9 mode and then let the monitor squish it back together. Uh, especially things like OSSC where you could have extra control on how to cut off the sides and stuff like that. But overall, it's not going to be an easy problem to solve because even if they added a different mode to GC video that would support that, you would need to take it apart and flash it, which you can't even really do on the Mark II because it's molded. So it's, it's just not an easy problem to solve. The only thing that might work is if Greg is able to get a different driver board that you could replace in that LCD CRT. And that probably would be much cheaper than buying an OSSC or a RetroTINK anyway. So it's not an easy problem to solve. I'm sorry, I basically have no good answer for you, but hopefully I was at least able to talk you through it so you know what to expect. Oliver Clare had a pretty detailed question that I read every word of, but just in respect of everybody's time, I'm going to skip to the answer. Uh, I'll start with the easiest question, the one right at the bottom. Do I have any controllers that I would recommend for general Mr. Use across a range of cores and platforms? Yeah, go to the Porkchop Express Mr. Latency Test and sort by controllers and pick the lowest latency ones there. The retro bit ones are amazing. Uh, I think they're averaging two milliseconds or something like that. Whatever it is, it's super low. Then uh, they come in Genesis and Saturn sizes. And there's a couple of different F SNES style USB controllers that are also super low latency to the point that it's they're just great. So pick whichever ones fit your hands best. People seem to love the Saturn one. I like it. SNES is still my favorite though, but I, I don't know. Maybe that's just my fat hands fit perfectly around there. We'll see. So that that's kind of an easy one. To go back to the your main question, um, Oliver has a pretty in-depth home network with a lot of different things wired up and a lot of things running. And they were kind of wondering how to do things like remote play with retro. And the easiest 
two ways to do this are with a very powerful PC using something like uh, Parsec. So you could fire up everything on the PC and then you use whatever other device like an NVIDIA Shield to game on multiple TVs, but you're actually using just that one PC. So it's the equivalent of you picking that PC up and walking into another room and plopping it down. Uh, it's going to be wired, but you know your, your network's wire, wired anyway. You could use wireless, but there's a lot of latency stuff with that. And it's pretty much the same as playing right in front of it. But if you don't want to use emulation, or you didn't have a, a fast, dedicated PC for this, multiple misters or multiple Raspberry Pis or a combination of both, all just pointing their ROMs to one location, would probably be the easiest. Now, if you are only using mister on your network, and that's it, so you have a couple of misters, you don't really need RetroNAS. Um, I do like the Simlink options, and I do like a few things that are more mister related, but you just need a share on any network in your house. If you're going to use any extra feature, I would add RetroNAS to an existing setup. Uh, usually a VM uh, would probably work on whatever server you have, or there's going to be Docker containers coming out at some point for different NAS devices. So that would be cool then, but at the moment, I think for just Mr. Use, it probably would be best to just open up a share. However, here's when it starts to get interesting. Let's say that you have two misters and you also want to throw a Raspberry Pi in there for emulation station just to get the consoles that Mr. doesn't have yet or just a wide variety of arcade stuff. You would have to, if you had consoles that overlapped, so, you know, PlayStation 1 still in progress on Mr., but you could play it on a Raspberry Pi Using the sim links that RetroNAS creates, you would only have to put your games in one spot, and then maybe you load up Recallbox and Mister, which I don't know if Recallbox is up on RetroNAS yet, but it's coming. But you load them both up, and you only drop your files in the PS1 folder, but they each see it in the folder that they think is in their correct directory structure. So right off the bat, that's just one reason why, even if you already have a network-attached storage somewhere, you might want to move to that. And you know, it should be pretty easy if you already have that detailed of a network. You said you have a Synology NAS. I, I don't know if I would run a Raspberry Pi and then point it to a share on the Synology or if you want to just wait until somebody creates a Docker, but that's kind of it. The only feature that's not out yet that I don't know, I have no clue, in fact, how it would be implemented is save game files. So how do you make sure that everybody's sharing the same save game files. So if I start a game downstairs and finish it upstairs on Mr. Number Two, you know, how could I pick up where I left off? I don't know. I also don't know things like what happens if there's a sync button and the file on the NAS is newer than the file on your Mr. What happens then? Is there two? Does one overwrite? Does it prompt you? How How is that going to happen? Is that scripted on the Mr.? Is that scripted on RetroNAS? So there's a lot of questions getting in there once you get to share saves, and I don't have any answers yet. But I hope the community as a whole will come together and figure this stuff out because I do think it's important and I want to see that as well. So excellent question. And it's just the only reason I don't have more solid answers for you is because RetroNAS is stable, but it's brand new and still evolving and evolving quickly. Um, and just a little aside there, I know I said this 20 times already, but if you are an early adopter, it doesn't matter that it's evolving. You're not going to have to erase everything and start from scratch in a couple months or more specifically, even if you did, it would just be on the uh, you know the NAS side, not the ROM 
collection side. That would stay the same. And that's where all of your time is going to be spent. Because if you're already a Linux person or a Windows person that knows command line, you could load up RetroNAS and have it running in like 15 minutes. And if you're a noob that's never done anything like this before, hour. You're going to spend a lot more than an hour getting your ROMs together on this thing. So that is the the one point that I definitely wanted to drive home is that, you know, that hour you spent now setting it up, maybe you have to spend it again in six months, but it's nothing compared to how much time you're going to spend getting all of your ROM packages together, get everything, everything laid out. And uh, there's probably even going to be an, an easy, easy way to upgrade at some point soon. So you might not even need to, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that point. So Yepo had an Atari 2600 power supply that they weren't able to repair and ended up picking up another one from a store that claimed it didn't deteriorate picture quality. Other people who had bought it said it worked well for them, but they want to know how to actually make sure it's working well and it isn't going to slowly kill their console. And it's a good question. It's kind of complicated. Um, One thing that you could check is just to put a multimeter on it while it's running. So just be very careful. You could probably, if you pop it open, you might be able to access the points and you want to see that it's not dropping under the minimum voltage. Um, You also might want to do a power supply test. You could look up videos on how to test amperage and you also, you should just need a basic multimeter for that too, not an oscilloscope. Pretty sure, but um, and I would test the console while a game is running and see how many amps it draws and what the amperage rating of that power supply is. And if it's drawing one amp and the power supply says two amp, good. If it's drawing one amp and the power supply says one amp, uh, that's cutting it a little close for my taste. It's probably fine, but uh, um, but that's pretty much it. I think the more important thing is that your head's in the right place. So you did your research and it seems to be a good power supply, but you didn't just blindly trust, you know, random reviews. You wanted to ask for extra technical details. So regardless of what my answer is, your question is, is the important part. You, you asked the right questions. So awesome. Good job. And, uh, you know, you could start doing other stuff like put it on a scope, check for power ripple and other stuff, but if you have the basics, it's not dropping below voltage and it's not drawing too much amps and you're using a console that's connected via RF or composite, you're, you're probably fine. Um, unless there's some very big issue, like you got wavy diagonal lines across the screen or, or something that you know stands out from the last power supply you used, I would say it's probably fine and you wouldn't have to worry. I would might I might double check the voltage and the amps like I just said, um, but you know it's just good that everybody's questioning these things. And on the flip side, by the way, not to insult any power supply manufacturer or or anybody posting reviews on a forum, but if the power supply manufacturer knows that they're good, they would be very happy that you ask this question, not offended, because then their nerds get to say, "Hell yeah, it's good! Check out all of this data that proves that it's good." And if they get snippy with you, they probably have something to hide. As long as you're nice. If you're a dick about it, I'm sure they'd be a dick too, like every other human. But yeah, good question. Um, And I think I gave you a pretty good overall way to approach it. But if for whatever reason you really wanted to get into power analysis, you might want to just check out some experts on YouTube and some other data out there and, and really dig into this. But I think the basics should get you where you need to go for this time. Nurtac has a couple of questions about the company Analog. I have no problem speculating and giving my thoughts on it. I just want to politely remind everybody that I have no affiliation to them whatsoever, other than I like Kevin a lot, and I think we're buddies, but that's pretty much it. So the question, I'll read everything through first and then answer all in one, but what if 
What, if anything, is preventing Analog from releasing cartridge adapters and firmware updates so that a Super NT could play Genesis games or a Mega SG could play Super Nintendo games? Why are they separate devices? Does the pocket prove that Analog kind of ripped people off who wanted both, or is there a technical reason this wouldn't work? Um, Well, I don't think there's a technical reason, but I definitely want to say... My personal strong opinion is that nobody ripped anybody off. Uh, I don't know if that's what you're implying or if that's you just painting the uh, the picture, which is totally cool. Um, for the purpose of this conversation, you know, I'm just going to assume you asked it just to have a conversation. And it's my really strong opinion that Analog said, here is a console that will play Genesis games as well as, you know, Game Gear and, and SMS. Here is a console that will play Super Nintendo games. And they never promised anything, which means they never ripped anybody off. They, they, or more importantly, they pro- what they promised you, they delivered. And they didn't promise a feature and then take it away. Why they did that is a company choice. And it sort of makes sense in that, you know, here's your Genesis. And here's a cartridge adapter for Game Gear, SMS, SG-1000. And uh, I think that was it. That makes sense. They, they all kind of go together. They're similar architecture. Same thing with on the Super Nintendo side. You know, you could use your Super Game Boy still with it. The Pocket, I do kind of think was cool that that they added the different cartridge adapters because I don't think uh, an FPGA Game Gear would sell nearly as much. Same thing with an FPGA Neo Geo Pocket Color or a Lynx. So offering those cartridge adapters did make sense because now you could have all of them on one platform and it kind of saves them money, it saves you money. But why are they separate devices? because that's how they wanted to market it. And could those games run on the other? Is there a technical limitation? I don't think so. I, th- I believe one of them had a more powerful FPGA than the other, so certain features might not be available, or maybe certain games might not work right. But generally, I think that you could load up... They could, not you, I'm sorry. I think they could release a jailbreak for every one of their consoles that allows every one of their cores to run mostly on it. And they just choose not to. And I kind of understand that because if you want one device that you could load up all of your ROMs on, the Mr. is already right there. And I don't think they want to compete with the Mr. I think they want to be their own thing. I think they want to be the company that says you have your library of cartridges, you plug them into this. And that's awesome. That means there's enough room for both projects. And, you know, it's really up to you to decide which one you would rather have. So I don't think there's any technical limitations, but I don't disagree with their decision. As a nerd, of course, I would want to see all of that stuff, but it's really just up to them. And every company does it. You know, Microsoft could choose to give some of their software away for free, especially to consumers and non-business use, but they don't. And I get it. Uh, so, you know, take that for what you will. I'm sure all of the analog trolls will come at me saying, you know, like they usually do, that I'm just mad because they didn't send me five free ones. It's the only reason I didn't defend them. And all the Mr. Trolls are going to be like, how dare Bob say cartridges matter? ROM is the same thing. And they can all go fuck themselves. Another question from Adam Adam Ant. They have a Shogun super gun that they've been trying to find a use for. They're in the process of rebuilding their Mr. with the Jamix ITX board, and other than having the ability to hook up DB15 style controllers directly to the Shogun, would there be any other benefits to using that with the Mr.? Um, no, but that's certainly not disrespectful to the Shogun or to Mr. I just don't think you would get anything out of that. Uh, I think plugging it in like that would be totally fine as long as you made absolutely sure not to also plug power into the Shogun. 
But I do think there might be more creative ways to get that done. Uh, check with the Jamix team, but maybe there's a header on there where you could break those out, which would be kind of cool because then you could put, I mean, it would be a pain to wire, but you could have DB15 ports right in the front of your case. So you could plug those right in. If there aren't headers, you could probably solder right to the JAMA fingers. Um, I personally would choose to do so as close to the motherboard side as possible. So that way you could eventually put it into an arcade machine style thing. And you wouldn't, you know, even if the wires were still there, the JAMA connector isn't going to go all the way over the wires. And that would be an advantage because that way it would allow people to use direct wired control sticks as well as whatever's built into your cab. Um, but just leaving the Shogun plugged in and using that should be fine as well. It just respectfully seems like a waste of a Shogun. Um, there is that project a while back, the CPS2 IO board. I'll leave a link because I have no idea what, what it was called. But it was designed for people who have those Capcom uh cps2 or any of those cps1 2 or 3 that already have marcus's hdmi kit and they don't need analog video as well so it's an open source design you the, the boards were designed so that you could power and power it and use controllers through it however if that's all you needed to do all you would have to do is buy some pcbs from jlc pcb of course uh buy some of the db15 connectors and then buy one JAMA edge and you could just do that. So, you know, if you already have a Shogun, you don't want to sell it, it totally makes sense. But for anybody else listening that thinks this is a cool idea, you know, you have your Jamix, you're not going to be putting it in, um, you know, into an arcade machine. You could absolutely use one of those to slide right over the Jamma edge. And the only thing that you would connect is the controllers. So then you're good to go. Uh, but I'm just shooting out ideas here. Or, you know, just wanted to, to paint a different picture or kind of explain a little bit more for people why they would want why you would want to plug a super gun into that. It's just to have your direct wired controllers, which I personally like because that means it'll work with everything. Um, and I just got a couple of uh, controller adapters that allow going wherever else I need it to go, but totally up to you and whatever your needs are. So I, I personally would probably find a better use for the Shogun, but totally cool to do it that way. Just don't plug power into the Shogun. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, post any question you'd like wherever it is that you support, but make sure to do so in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I really like just scrolling through in real time like you saw me do here. So any question at all, the newest Q&A post, wherever it is that you support, and I will get to it. Um, and if I don't get to it this week, it's always an accident. It's usually because the question came in after I was done recording and already started rendering, uh, or in rare occasion, I accidentally delete stuff in post and don't know where it went. So any question at all, if I miss it, re-ask or just DM me if you need to. And of course, and as always, thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible because you are the ones keeping all of this stuff going. So thank you very much, and I'll see you next week.